what forest elephants do when you encounter an area where you know elephants have just passed through, you see that they are kind of destructive, but in a good way. So their foraging behavior seems to be rather destructive. They pull down a lot of vines and they just trample a lot of vegetation. So it seems a little destructive, but actually what it does is that it creates a mosaic of different ecological niches. And that makes space and room and, you know, for, for other species. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusen, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. You are just listening to postdoctoral fellow Daniela Hedwig of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. She works in the bioacoustics research program, studying the sounds of forest elephants and gorillas. Locally sourced science contributor Candace Limper spoke with Dr. Hedwig about her research, and you'll hear their conversation later on in the program. First off, you'll hear about this week's science news. I recently visited a colorful plant wonderland at the Cornell Botanic Gardens. Right now, in the heart of summer, there is a display of annual plant varieties installed in front of the Nevin Welcome Center at the gardens. The living display is called the Annual Trial Garden. To learn more about the garden, I spoke with Kendra Hutchins, the trial manager of the Cornell Annual Flower Trials Program. The Annual Flower Trials Program used to be held at Bluegrass Lane, the site of a horticulture research facility near the Cornell Golf Course. But this year, it was moved to Cornell Botanic Gardens. Here, Hutchins comments on how things are working out at the new site. Well, the new location is great because it's fully accessible to the public. It's open from the... Cornell Botanic Gardens are open from dawn to dusk, and so that means that people can come at any time and browse the flowers, take a look around, and vote on their favorites. I think people are looking at what what new cultivars are here. Sometimes they're interested in the genetics that go into the cultivar development, but I think most people are just here to look at pretty flowers. (laughs) She then talked about what her program is trying to learn from the annual trials. Well, over the years, we've actually learned a lot about different cu- how different cultivars respond in our geographic location. Um, we're looking at things like um, the flower power, how many flowers, how fl- floriferous a plant is. We look at uh, the foliage. We look at the uniformity of the plot. And then we also give it an overall landscape value score. So um, it's interesting to see some plants come back year to year and see how they respond in different um when we have different seasonal temperatures. Um, And then also it's great to see the new varieties that are coming out. Then she described what the plant breeding companies do after the annual trials. The breeding companies are constantly breeding and and working on the genetics in a cultivar for things like disease resistance or um, flower power. And so um, if something isn't performing well, sometimes they'll send it back to the drawing board and they will sort of work on improving those traits for um, release in the future. Dr. Bill Miller is the research director of the Cornell Annual Flower Trials and professor in the School of Integrative Plant Science at Cornell. 
Here he talks about how plant breeders produce the different cultivars of certain annual plants. How are the horticulturists producing plants with different colored flowers and foliage? Well, with any of these uh, species that you see here, there, there is a sexual breeding process in, in flower crossing. And uh, a lot with, with some of the plants, I'm not sure about salvia, but with many of the plants, there are inbred lines, and they know specifically if they take an inbred male and an inbred female and cross them, they will get a certain very uniform seed progeny that is produced. I then asked him how the plant breeders create the inbred lines. It, it means that, that parental lines are crossed back to themselves multiple times. And I, I'm not a geneticist, but the idea is that with repeated backcrossing, the, the genetic background of the plant, the genes all become stable. And then you can take a female plant and a male plant, all of which are, are genetically homogenous pretty much within themselves. And when you cross them, then you get the so-called hybrid vigor and you get all of the combinations that come out of that. But the point is when you, when you do that, the seeds that are produced are all very, very similar genetically. And so they perform very similarly in, in, a, in a garden bed. Now that the annual trial is happening next to the Nevin Visitor Center at Cornell Botanic Gardens, they are attracting interested amateur gardeners. I spoke to a couple of people who are visiting the garden and voting on their favorites. Here is visitor George Gessline. Do you do plantings at your house? Yes, quite a few. And so uh, are you looking for anything special today? Just something that uh, is outstanding and is nicer than we have. What do you consider outstanding? Uh, that one right behind you, that uh, verbena is really beautiful. Well, why do you like those? I like the color. It's, it's a really bright blue. It's, it's, it's a lively blue. Do you think that will fit into your garden? Absolutely. That's one of the things we're a little short of. And this is gardener Marge Smart. I'm looking at the calibrecoa, the dahlias, the salvia. Those are of particular interest to me. I look for my favorite colors. <laughs> and what are those? I'm not a fan of purple, but that... Uh, display of the purple petunias is is beautiful. Um, I tend to like yellows, blues, whites. Do you look for a contrast? Yes, yes. I think it was uh, Monet who uh, contrasted red and green in his paintings of poppies, and I think that is very pleasing to the eye. So listeners, take advantage of the beautiful summer weather and come visit the annual trials garden at Cornell Botanic Garden. You'll enjoy a colorful display and have a chance to start thinking about next year's garden. And that's your science news for the week. As promised, now you'll hear Candace Limper's conversation with Dr. Daniela Hedwig. She is a postdoctoral fellow in the Bioacoustics Research Program at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here, Dr. Hedwig talks about how researchers listen in to animals living in rainforests. What we are doing is something that is called passive acoustic monitoring. That means we are placing acoustic units, basically microphones, out in the forest in areas that are hard to access in order to record animals that are often hard to observe. 
So the acoustics is really a great tool to efficiently monitor and watch animals that we can hardly, that we, that's very difficult to observe them directly. How do you do the recording of the, of their noises? Like there's microphones that you would bring on a, your hike? Back then for my dissertation, for my PhD, what I did is I did what we call active acoustic monitoring. So I was carrying a microphone and a much larger uh, recorder than what you have with me. And I would always pick one specific individual in the group and I would follow them. It's something we call a focal follow. So we pick one specific individual and we follow that one over a certain period of time and we take notes on their um, activity and their social interactions and in my case also their vocalizations. So for me, um, it might be difficult to distinguish one gorilla among a group. How are you able to differentiate that one gorilla, that focal? Uh, well, so first of all, you have one very, very big one, which is the silverback. So it's very easy to tell apart. The silverback male is much, much bigger, and he's got this nice silver white back. And then the females, they they have faces like you and me. And it's the same with elephants. It's yeah, it's something that we as people we're so accustomed to, you know, recognizing human faces. But uh, so it's in the beginning, it's very difficult for us to tell apart animal faces. But once you brain your train and you watch them, you will see that they are individual features. And they just, you know, they have their individual faces. Do you understand some form of their communication within the group? I do. With the gorillas, it, the thing is that everything they do, their vocal behavior is very quiet, supple, and context unspecific. They do a lot of grunts and grumbles. And the funny thing, what they also do is something that people do not really expect, is that they hum. They can hum like dogs almost. And that is something that's very specific to feeding. So it often happens that they're sitting in a group and like in a big salad bowl and they are munching their leaves and then they start humming in the chorus. It's the most, yeah, it's a really wonderful uh, vocalization to hear. I have never heard of that. Does that mean that they're enjoying what they're eating? I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. They, they look like they're enjoying what they're eating, but I think it has something to do with uh, coordinating the group. I think it often happens if they find something that's very, that they like very much and they want to stay in that area. And so, like, um, the significance of understanding how these animals communicate to one another, what, what would that be? I mean, for in the, in the specific case for my dissertation, it was really basic research, really understanding what this is all about. And this also has implications often to the way human language evolves. One big part of my uh, dissertation research uh, focused on the uh, structure of their vocalizations, and it's very interesting, specifically when you look at how they use the grunts. So their grunts are basically, and they combine different types of grunts in a sequence, like. 
So, and that kind of, when I first looked at this, I, I realized like, wow, this is like syntax almost, what we have in human language, where we combine uh, vowels, for instance, into words, and then we combine those words into sentences to make um, more meaningful expressions. Are you able to formulate from these awarenesses, like kind of what they're communicating with each other? We, we definitely see uh, changes in the context in which they use those uh, specific sequences of different uh, grunt types. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're not that different from us after all. I think what, what is important to, to really understand and whether this is very similar to what we do is what is actually going on in the animals' heads when they're doing this. Is this an intentional thing and what are they trying to communicate? When we communicate with each other as people, we often communicate about third entities and objects that are around us or abstract concepts. Whereas we, we think that in animals it's slightly different, that they are more communicating about their intentions and emotions. So animal vocalizations seem to be way more effective and less referential than human language. Now that you have your PhD and you're working on your postdoc, what are you working on currently? So the cool thing is what I'm trying to do now is to combine my understanding of uh, basic research of uh, vocal communication in animals and how we can use this to help protect the animals that we study. So are um, gorillas the only animals that you have um, had the opportunity to listen to so far? So I'm, I'm interested not in specific species, but more in broader questions. What shapes animal vocal communication system? And the best way to answer those questions is to look at a whole bunch of different uh, vocal, vocal communication systems and social systems and see how the way they vocalize changes with the habitat that the animals live in and within uh, with the social system that they function in. Do you think that there's going to be some similarities across all species? Not just like humans do this, gorillas do that, like a certain pitch? I don't, I don't know. Like some... Like well, you can have an animal talk in the microphone or whatever, and then eventually one day you're going to figure out what they're saying mm -hmm. based on some algorithm that someone made. I mean, this is actually something that I'm interested in. So with the Elephant Listening Project, we are trying to develop something that um, we call the Elephant Dictionary. So across species, we can relate the acoustic structure of vocalizations to what the animals are doing and the context in which those specific vocalizations happen, right? And we can use this as a dictionary to interpret the uh, recordings that we make of the animal sounds via the passive acoustic monitoring. So right now, we place those recorders in the forest where they, we get those very, very long uh, recordings. And right now what we do is we look for the elephant rumble vocalizations, for instance, and we count those. And this tells us something about where elephants are most active and which areas and how those activities change over time. So I imagine that knowing this information, it will better allow us to protect them. Right, and we actually... I believe that this can really revolutionize the way we study animal behavior. 
if we have dictionaries like that, we can not only monitor the animal's activities over large times and uh, large areas, we'll also be able to know exactly what the animals are doing where. Who is that in collaboration with? Is that just something that's going on at Cornell? We are embedded uh, within the bioacoustics research program at the Lab of Ornithology, but we collaborate with a lot of people, and especially in the field, we, we need the support of local NGOs. So we work a lot with the Wildlife Conservation Society, or WWF. Are you planning on any fun trips? Um, I actually audio? came back from Central Africa two months ago. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. For the gorillas or the elephants? Uh, for the elephants, yeah. The, the gorilla stuff is unfortunately in the past now, so I, I stopped working on that. And now I'm like full on elephants. You've been listening to Dr. Daniela Hedwig of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. She's been describing her former research on gorilla vocalization. Stay tuned to hear about Dr. Hedwig's current research on the sounds of forest elephants. You can listen to Locally Sourced Science every other Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. at WRFI.org. And you can also subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Head to our website at LocallySourcedScience.org for podcast links and our show archive. Stay in touch with us by tweeting us at FLX Science Radio. If you would like to promote your upcoming science event, please email us at science at gmail.com. Also, please send comments to that same email address. We're back with the second part of Candace Limper's conversation with Dr. Daniela Hedwig. Here, she talks about her work with the Elephant Listening Project at the Lab of Ornithology. She studies the sounds of forest elephants. We focus on the forest elephants and protecting them because they are the architects and the gardeners of the rainforest. One specific thing is that they feed on fruit in comparison to the savanna elephants. And because they are so large, they take in the seeds of very large fruit. There is no other animal that can ingest such a large seed. So that means they they swallow those seeds whole then they travel for a couple of kilometers and then they poop them out. So they're really important part of that ecosystem in terms of dispersing the seeds of those very, very large trees. And the other thing is what forest elephants do when you encounter an area where you know elephants have just passed through, you see that they're kind of destructive, but in a good way. So their foraging behavior seems to be rather destructive. They pull down a lot of vines and they just trample a lot of vegetation. So it seems a little destructive, but actually what it does is that it creates a mosaic of different ecological niches. And that makes space and room and you know, for, for other species. So their activity, they really shape and maintain the rainforest. They are a crucial part of maintaining the biodiversity of those forests. And those forests are important for us on a global scale as well, because they're such important climate buffers. And unfortunately, I think they're shrinking. I think over the last decade, we have lost 30% of the range of forest elephants. They are listed as vulnerable right now.
how many more elephants do we need to have more of in order to get them off that list? That is hard to say. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say, especially with the forest elephants, and that's where the acoustic monitoring comes in. We have very little understanding of how many elephants are actually out there because they, you can't count them. With a easily, you know, with the savanna elephants, you can fly with an with a helicopter across the savanna and you count them, but you can't do that in a tropical rainforest. Okay. And that's what we're trying to do with the passive acoustics. So we currently have two very big projects going on in Central Africa. We are working in an area. Um, it's the Central African rainforest, the second largest block of pristine forest that's still on the planet after the Amazon. And there we work in, in a transboundary protected area called the Sangatri Nationale, which spans across Cameroon, the Central African Republic, and Congo. And this is a really large area where animals can roam across boundaries. This is what we need to protect you know, large animals like elephants. Is that area protected right now or no? Is it, yes. Yeah. Oh, is it okay? yeah, yeah. It consists okay. of three different national parks and then there are like buffer zones and protected areas around the national parks. Even though it's protected, is there still poaching going on in those areas? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So, um, so within that area, we have two projects. One takes place in the Northern Republic of Congo, where we have a large landscape scale acoustic grid. That means we have over an area of 1,250 square kilometers, 50 acoustic units based where we record elephant vocalizations. And gunshots as well. So this will give us a better understanding of how elephants uh, use their habitat on a landscape scale. This hasn't been done before. And the other project is a little bit further up north, about 50 kilometers, at, um, where I specifically work. And this is the Zanga protected area. And there we have an absolutely unique study site, which is called the Zangabai. And Zangabai is a a large forest clearing in the Central African rainforest. And what makes this place so unique is that whenever you go there, you can expect to see at least 50 forest elephants. It's an absolutely fantastic place. I was, the craziest day that we had in my last field season was 178 elephants. In one day? At one time. At one yeah, time. In yeah. a group, a herd of mm-hmm. them. Yeah. That it's must a, be so overwhelming. It's fantastic. Yeah. There's so much going on. Yeah, it's very difficult to collect data then, but uh, it's really impressive. You said you were tracking gun noises and then elephant movement. Mm-hmm. Are the elephants moving away from the gun noise? From personal observation is from my last field season, where we every now and then actually can hear gunshots very close to the clearing where the elephants are. And we had one very bad incident just north of the clearing, maybe 100 meters into the forest. And after that incident, the, the number of elephants that we watched on a daily basis just got, it just crashed. The elephants were avoiding the area. And it was pretty interesting because all the individuals that we know that have been there during that incident, they gradually moved out. The numbers 
just really collapsed. There were very few elephants. And then gradually new elephants came in. So I had the feeling that when they heard that gunshot or the gunshots, the ones that were there, they just moved away. And then slowly other individuals moved into the area. Ones that didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. It is alarming in, when you look at spectrograms of certain areas where we work, there's so much noise. It's boats, it's airplanes, it's motorcycles. It's, there is a lot of noise pollution going on, and it makes you wonder in how far that influences the way the animals can actually communicate with each other because that noise masks their natural vocalizations. So it might actually inhibit the, the way they can you know, transmit information between each other. So are there tags on the ears also as another means to track them? In terms of tracking, yeah, you, can, you can use GPS collars, for instance, which is, it's been done, but that doesn't give you information about how many animals are in a certain area. Okay. It gives you more an idea about the ranging, how far do they move, where do they move. But with the acoustics, we can, by counting the, their vocalizations, we can infer on how many animals are in a certain area. Yeah, that's, it seems like a powerful method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, it's so much more powerful compared to conventional methods because we can monitor much larger areas over much larger, longer time. And we, we can also focus on very elusive animals that are very difficult to observe directly. So you said you went, you go out there on your trips on in using this big equipment. I'm assuming that you don't bring a ton of batteries with you. How are you juicing these materials? We we do bring a lot of batteries. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. We we still rely on batteries a lot. The thing is that a lot of things that from the technological side, a lot of things that work so well here and where we live every day. If you take this stuff to Africa, it just doesn't work. Even working, we work on a, under a closed canopy, for instance. So you can't use solar power. There's just too much shade. And currently, to my knowledge, the solar panels are just not that efficient yet to, you know, really harvest the energy from the sun when, when there's very little reaching the surface of the panels. The other challenge that we have is how to get the data out from the acoustic units. Right now, we move into the forest, we place those units there, we leave them, and then we have to come back to extract the data, change batteries, and get the SD cards, change SD cards. I mean, just to give you an idea, right now, what we're doing in the northern Congo, the landscape's grid, it takes us a month to go to each individual unit to collect the data. Okay, so there's no satellite streaming this. We have not reached that level right now. We are, we are working on a real-time system to yeah. retrieve that data, but set, even like satellite phones are a thing of communication in the tropics, and we use that, but it's, it's still unreliable. And it's also very expensive, you know. You, we need to get very good technology that is very cost-efficient with which we can extract that data. So how long do you think it'll be before you have something that's able to be streamed? We are working with people to get there, but so far it has been very difficult. But we hope that within the next five years we'll, we'll get something that will revolutionize everything. I mean, you must imagine it's not just getting real-time information about elephants. It's also getting real-time information about gunshots. 
So right now, all our data comes in, you know, three months after the actual things happen. And that's already very valuable. But if you can get that information in real time, then the anti-poaching patrols, they can move out right away once they know exactly where a gunshot is. You just heard Dr. Daniela Hedwig of the Elephant Listening Project at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. To find out more, go to elephantlisteningproject, that's one word, dot O-R-G. Next up is our science calendar. There are a number of events taking place at the Museum of the Earth at the Paleontological Research Institution, also known as PRI, in Ithaca, New York. First off, on August 9th, starting at 9 a.m., there is a workshop for scientists called How to Engage the Public Through Social Media. The workshop is free, but registration is required. The Museum of the Earth also has a number of special summer programs happening every weekday. They range from Monday afternoon's Matrix Project, sorting through overburden of ancient seas, to Friday's Living Fossils Exhibit Tour. Speaking of fossils, PRI also sponsors the James Patorti Interpretive Gorge Walks. They all take place from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. The next walk is taking place on August 9th at Buttermilk Falls State Park. Meet at the main entrance next to the swimming area. There is also a walk on August 16th at Taganic Falls State Park. Meet at the lower falls along Route 89 in the parking lot. For more information about all of the events sponsored by the PRI, go to priweb.org. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you've been listening to the August 6, 2019 edition of Locally Sourced Science. I produced today's show, and Candace Limper produced the interview with Dr. Daniela Hedwig. Joe Lewis wrote our theme music. Other music was from Blue Dot Sessions. Don't forget that you can tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Please check out our archive and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Locally Sourced Science. Science out.